Good morning. Uh, please get out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where the lesson will primarily be coming from this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study of the promises that God has made to us this morning. And uh, it just so happens that uh, the best text for this, I thought, was Ephesians chapter 2, which is the next text that we were going to be studying on Sunday night. Uh, so I decided to just move that to this morning. Uh, and we'll discuss this promise from this text. Uh, our world is full of conflict and uh, all kinds of evil and hatred toward others. Uh, and we kind of feed off of it. The news just feeds off of it and just makes money out of it. Um, and when, when somebody mistreats somebody else, the solution is to mistreat them back. And so as we hate people, uh, it creates more hate, and it's just this vicious cycle that goes on and on and on and on, and we just kind of wonder, is anybody going to stop this? Can, can anybody stop this pattern of malicious hate, hate that we feel toward one another? Um, can God do anything to create peace? Uh, well, as we look throughout scriptures, we find that God has done something already to create peace. Uh, and he desires for there to be peace. And so he makes promises that he would create peace. And he fulfills those promises to make peace. But then we sit here and we say, well, wait a second. Now there's no peace. <laughs> we look around and we don't see peace. So how is it that he has made a promise that there would be peace and that we are experiencing peace when it doesn't really feel like there's any peace at all? We're going to be looking a little bit more in depth at this promise and understand what is meant, what is intended when God is promising peace and when he delivers peace to us. There's really two different ways that God promises to give his people peace. Uh, there is peace with God, and that is a peace in the relationship that we have with God and uh, with each other. It's kind of an external peace, you know, a peace that we're talking about with uh, the world around us should have or that we wish the world around us has. And then there's this internal peace, right? There's a, a peace that is within, that, uh, that is called the peace of God that surpasses understanding. Uh, so there's two different ways in which peace is talked about throughout Scripture. Uh, so I couldn't really fit both of them into one sermon, so we're going to have two sermons on peace. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the peace uh, that we have with God, which is the primary peace that I think the Bible promises to us. And then tonight we're going to talk about the peace of God, the peace that is more internal. And how can we have that which God has also promised to give to us? Uh, in a world full of anxiety and stress, he promises to give us peace internally as well. Uh, so we're going to look at the external peace and the internal peace. Let's begin by going into the Old Testament and seeing some of these promises that were talked about. Melvin just read uh, one of them, but let, let's look at a couple others. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, God promises uh, a peace-giving king. And here's the text up on the screen for you. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice in this promise that it's, it's, it's referring to Christ, and it's actually quoted in Matthew and as, as referring to Christ, the child, unto us a child is born. Uh, and, but what he says about this child, as he describes Christ, is very interesting. He calls him Wonderful Counselor. Isn't that what a counselor does? Doesn't he, doesn't he counsel you to, to make peace, to help you understand the difficulties in life and to, to, to have the right mindset and the right thought and the right thinking? Well, he's called that a wonderful counselor. The, the, the mighty, a mighty God, which Jesus is God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's that phrase, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is this king who is establishing a government wherein there can be found peace that has no end. What a statement uh, that is being promised. That, that Jesus, whenever he comes, he would be the Prince of Peace and that he would set up his government and in his government there would be peace that is eternal as he rules with justice and righteousness forever. Well, that sounds really good to us, doesn't it? Uh, if you, you flip over uh, a couple of chapters in Isaiah chapter 11, you see another promise of peace. Uh, and this is a promise of peace with each other. That uh, that, that God is wanting to establish. And in verse 6 of Isaiah 11, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now, if you just back up a little bit, you'll see it's still talking about a king being given that's going to create peace. But here we have this image, a wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying with the young goat. It says, The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together... And a, and a little child shall leave them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like, a, like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I love this text. There's so many really neat pictures in this text. But as you read through this text, you notice that there's unity with opposites. A bear, you know, a wolf, a lion, and a child, and a goat, and a, a, a lamb. These are, these are opposites. These should be attacking each other and devouring each other. There's no peace between these animals. There's strife. There's contention. There's, there's uh, destruction that takes place. And yet he says in his kingdom, there's going to be peace between these animals. Isn't that interesting? And why and how is there going to be peace? Well, he says, they will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. You see how the knowledge of the Lord is creating peace between these opposites. 
between the, the alpha lion that dominates and destroys and the, the humble little lamb. And notice a little child will lead them. That goes in line with much of what we've been studying on Sunday mornings, that uh, you must be a child, you must become a child, must become humble in order to be great in the kingdom. But all of this is telling us that Jesus, whenever he is king, he is going to create a resting place that will be glorious in his kingdom, on his holy mountain. Now, that's always a reference to Jerusalem. Uh, and so this is telling us that the people in the kingdom, in the holy mountain, in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of God in the New Testament uh, that, that is in heaven, will experience this level of peace with one another. Uh, and, and essentially as he is ruling over them with God. But the peace with God is, is really found in that passage that Melvin read in Ezekiel 37. Uh, did you catch this phrase in that passage that uh, God would make a covenant of peace as Jesus is the, the, the servant, the David figure, who is their prince forever, God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst. My dwelling place shall be with them. He's going to make peace with his people, and they are going to be allowed to dwell with him. And it's interesting because... Up until this point in Ezekiel, we have not seen peace. Ezekiel is not seeing the result of a peaceful covenant. He's seeing the result of a hostile covenant, that the people have rebelled against God, and God has been forced to judge them because of their rebellion. The covenant before was not a covenant of peace, but now Ezekiel is foretelling, and God is foretelling, that when the servant David comes to be king over them, he will establish the covenant of peace that there will be peace established under a new covenant that will come. There will no longer be a hostile relationship with God, but there will be a loving and peaceful and gentle and caring and compassionate and joy-filled and blessed relationship with God that is going to be created when his servant David you see how the Old Testament just is full of these ideas of peace being promised to the coming generations once the king comes, the prince of peace comes, and he establishes this. Well, where in the New Testament do we read about God fulfilling this promise of peace? Ephesians is a great place to go. Uh, so if you're not there yet, go, go over to Ephesians chapter 2. And you'll remember last week we started in Ephesians chapter 2 and we noticed that God has, has demonstrated his power by using the same power he used to raise Christ from the dead to raise us from spiritual death and bring us to new life by his grace. He saved us from our sins. Chapter 1 also referred to this and the redemption that was given uh, and, and that we have been added to the body of Christ. We are in Christ, has been referred to over and over again in chapters, chapters 1 and chapter 2. And now we see it again, except now in, in verses 11 through 22, we do see a focus on the peace of God that was in the Old Testament being brought about in Christ. 
Listen to the way it, it begins. It begins much like the beginning of chapter 2. Verse 11 says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The first two verses here tell us that the Ephesians were... Strangers, and, he, and notice the word that's used twice. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated. He really wants them to remember this idea that you Gentiles, the Ephesians, were not at peace with God. You were, you were not with God. You were not joined to God. You were separated from God. You were called the uncircumcision, the uncircumcised Gentiles. And essentially, he's saying, you didn't have the covenants of promise made to you. You were as lost as, as anybody on the earth, wandering around with no clue, no understanding of who God is or what God really wanted from you or what, what God had in store for you. You were just strangers. You were just uh, foreigners. You were just wandering around alienated from all the blessings that God had decided to give to Israel. That, that phrase, uncircumcised, had, had become a derogatory term. You remember when David, uh, before he slew Goliath, he said, who's letting this uncircumcised Philistine say these things? And this is the way the Jews would think about the Gentiles, that they were just nasty, and they were, they were hopeless, and they were lost, and they were full of evil and, and immorality. And he says, remember that that was you, Ephesians. The Jews were not like you. The Jews were given special promises, and they were given special privileges, but you were without any of those things. You were just gone. You were lost. You were, there was no hope for you. But why is that? Why is that? Why did God choose the Jews, and, and, and instead of just saving everybody and calling everybody all at the same time. Why does he go down this path of choosing a specific group of people and, and make them into this special people with all these promises, with all these covenants, with all these privileges? Well, there's two reasons. There may be more, but I, I have two. The first reason is that God had intention to draw attention to this group of people. As all these different people were spreading throughout the earth in Genesis, God had a desire to, to take special note of one group so that everybody would look at them and say, wow, they're weird. They're different. What are they doing? Why do they believe what they believe? Why are they pursuing these laws that are outside of the norm of what we, we have always done? Why aren't they worshiping all the gods that we worship? And eventually they would, but they were, they were intended to stand out and be something totally different, to draw everyone's attention to Israel, to, to ponder and to wonder about them. And, and then eventually what God had intended was to bring all those surrounding nations to him through this specific 
group. This was his plan before the beginning of time. This was his intention, was to choose this group, to bless this group, and to bring this group to a point where all the nations would want to be a part of it and where they could find a relationship with God through them. But he says, you were not them. You, you Ephesians, you were Gentiles. You had no covenant relationship with God. You were outside of all those promises, looking in, jealously wondering why we don't have a relationship like they do. We were strangers of the covenants of promise. Notice how that's worded. Strangers of the covenants of promise. There's multiple there. So probably referring to the covenant made with Abraham, covenant made with Moses and all Israel there at Mount Sinai, maybe the covenant made with Levi, uh, that they could draw nearer to God than others. Maybe, maybe the covenant of David, that the king would sit on the throne. Gentiles had none of those promises made to them. Gentiles were completely outside of those promises and strangers to those covenants. That's us. That's us. As he speaks to the Ephesians and, and talks about their Gentile nature, we realize that that's who we are, that we are Gentiles, that we were separated from Christ, that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were hopeless. Without Christ, before Christ, we were hopeless. Every single man and woman who was not a descendant of Abraham's on the earth, if they don't have Christ, if they've never had Christ, they had no other hope. They had no other avenue of having a relationship with God. They were hopeless. We were hopeless. Every single person here. It doesn't matter if we grew up going to church all our lives. We were hopeless. We fit into the same category of having no hope because we were separated. But, notice verse 13, but. I love that word. <laughs> you remember back in verse 4 it said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Oh, it's just a great word. It's a great phrase, a great idea. But. He just fills us full of understanding about how low we were, how we were just hopeless. Then he says, but. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, having been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father.
I love this text, just the, the, the excitement of it as you go from being strangers and foreigners and separated to now understanding that the Gentiles can be brought near. How? How can the Gentiles, those who are without hope, who are just completely without God for thousands of years, how, after they have progressed in their immorality to become so evil and so horrible in the, new, in the first century, how could they be brought near? Was it by becoming Jews and submitting to the laws of the Jews and being circumcised? Was it by fulfilling the, the law and keeping the law and becoming this great law keeper like the Jews were? <laughs> no. By the blood of Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. I love that word too. Brought near. Allowed to come into the presence of God. You were far off. There was no way. And really the Jews were far off, but they were nearer than you. And now he says both groups were able to be brought near and notice the way he says it emphatically. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Jesus, the, the son of David, the, the prince of peace, is our peace. Gentile, Jew, doesn't matter. We're all made into something that's new. Because God has done what we couldn't do. God has broken down the wall of hostility that divided us. And the law was a part of that. God selecting the, the, the Jews instead of the Gentiles created some hostility between them and, and created uh, complete disobedience and rebellion of the Gentiles. But all of the wall of separation has been brought down. There is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There instead is unity and peace between both groups as they are both reconciled to God. Both all together were dead in their sins. And both can be made alive in Christ. Notice the last verse there, verse 18. In Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our access. And there's no distinction in Jesus' mind now that there's, there's a, Jew, a Jew who's become a Christian and a, a, a Gentile who's become a Christian. Okay, well, you're going to come in and you're going to sit here and be real close to God, but you are a Gentile Christian. You're going to sit over here and you're going to be far away. No. Both have access, full access to God through Christ in the Spirit. He keeps going. Verse 19. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the three pictures of unity here. First of all, he says, you are fellow citizens uh, in the kingdom. You're fellow citizens with the Jews. There's no distinction in your citizenship As before, you all fit into one category of Gentile. Now, you all fit into one category of Christian. And and the Jews are added into that same category. You are all citizens of the heavenly kingdom of God. And that citizenship carries with it a sense of peace while we live in a foreign land. We're members and citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We're living in a land that is not our home. And so this kind of helps us understand the answer to the question. Why don't we feel like there's peace around us? Well, we're not citizens here. We're foreigners here. But we're citizens there. And that citizenship carries the benefit of having peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Because we're all in the same boat. We're all in a foreign land, citizens of another place, redeemed by the blood of Jesus and allowed to approach the throne of God in our prayers. We have open access to God. If you go to another country, you don't have the same privileges that you have in this country. Those privileges are removed from you. And you're susceptible to the laws that govern the land that you're in. And in the same way, we are in a foreign land dealing with the fact that we don't have citizenship here. And and we don't have the righteous and just king over us in this country. But the righteous and just king is over this king. And he's working in it all. So he's creating some level of peace for us. But the ultimate peace comes from the knowledge that we are citizens in heaven. And that citizenship will not be revoked or removed unless we want it to. It's always available to us. And he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now think about that. That means that I am in the same position. I am a citizen of heaven as Abraham is, as Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. I am in in the same category. I'm in the same boat as all of them. I am a citizen of their same kingdom. The third image, or the second image is, you are made into uh, members of the household of God. You are now a family. You are now a family with God. After you enter into Christ, we are a part of God's family. That means we have new brothers, we have new sisters, we have new mothers, we have new fathers. We have relationships that are supposed to be getting developed and growing. And it doesn't matter if the person was a wolf or if they were a lamb. We are now joined together in a family relationship. And that wolf defends the lamb. And that lamb cuddles up next to that wolf and lets them feel the love and the warmth and the compassion that they need. 
We have joined relationship in, in our family relationship with one another. This is what we share together in Christ. This is what a Gentile and a Jew who would have seemed so opposite are now being joined together in the kingdom. And that is supposed to give us extra peace. The third image is given even more information. He says uh, that we are basically living stones in God's temple. But notice how this one would give us a lot of peace. It says, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If you're a stone in a building, how important is it for you to have a good foundation? <laughs> it gives you some sense of peace. But also, he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together, again a picture of being joined, being unified with one another, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Notice that the third image is that we are being built into the temple of God. And the temple is the place where people would go to draw near to God, to, to have the presence of God. And we are the temple indicates the presence of God is always with us. As living stones in his temple, we are always in his presence. He is always with us and we are a part of one another and we are built on the foundation that will not be removed. That we can worship and serve our God all our lives as a part of something that is bigger than us. It gives us a sense of purpose and, and, and reason for being here. We are not here for ourselves. We are the temple of God to shine as a light for all the nations to see God's glory. That all the nations could come to this temple and find peace with God and be added to it. And this is the way that, that God wanted us to understand He has created peace. What does all of this mean? Being added to the universal church gives us peace when there was no peace. So many times people out in the world think, yeah, I've got peace with God. I'm a pretty good person. I do, I do mostly the right things and, you know, maybe even I go to church every now and then. And they don't understand the dire situation that they're in. That without the blood of Christ, there is no peace. There is no drawing near to a holy and perfect God in heaven. So Paul says, remember. Remember where you came from. That you were totally lost. How easy is that for us to forget? We can forget it at the drop of a hat. Remember, you were separated without hope. But God has done something to bring you into his family. Make you into something that's better than you ever thought you ever could be. To the praise of his glory. And seek peace with one another. Through humble service. We are a part of this family. We are a part of one another. I know this world teaches us to be individualistic, 
to be self-focused and full of selfishness. But if we die to self, we die to selfishness. And that is the only way there will be peace with one another. And that's what God has called us to do. To be at peace with one another. If I'm a wolf, I must be humble and gentle and loving toward the lamb, not dominate and destroy him. I must seek peace and seek union with one another. We are a family. This is the most important family. This is our eternal family. And it must take precedence over every family that we have on earth. It's, this is it. So we ought to be building one another up and loving one another and caring for one another as a family would. We also see that peace is available to every single person who seeks it. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, I don't have peace with God right now. The beauty is, according to this text, it doesn't matter how far off you are. If you realize that you're far off, know you can be brought near. We all need the blood of Jesus to bring us near. There's not a single person here who is close enough that they don't need the blood of Jesus and, and you need it as well. And you can come in contact with that blood. You can be brought near by the blood of Christ. But you have a choice to make. Don't reject the invitation. I know we make it week in and week out, and it seems like just this thing that we just do out of habit, but this is your opportunity. God's blessings are not for the most beautiful. They're not for the strongest and the most righteous. They're for all will humbly come to him seeking peace why be destroyed if we can help you this morning to make peace with God will you let us please come as we stand and as we sing